This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening and welcome to this Edinburgh International Book Festival event. I'm Serena Field and I'm a BBC Arts producer. Before I go to sleep, S.J. Watson's first novel, sold over 40 million copies, has been translated into multiple languages and has won a clutch of awards. It was, of course, also turned into a film starring Nicole Kidman, Colin Firth and Mark Strong. S.J. Watson is here in Edinburgh today to talk about his second novel, Second Life, a psychological thriller like the first. But in this book, the central uncertainty and unease comes not from amnesia, but from the unreliability of online identities and from the way we're made vulnerable when we have secrets to keep. It's great to have him here. Can you please join me in welcoming S.J. Watson? Thank you very much. So, Steve, you've said in interviews that being a, a published author was a long-held ambition. Hmm. I've just outlined some of the success of your, your first book. You're here at this major book festival today. Hmm. Uh, I was looking at your website today. There's a trailer on there for <laughs> your second book. Um, is it all living up to your dreams? N yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Good. Um, well, I, I never really even dared to dream of this, really. Um, it has always been my ambition to write books and to have them published. Yeah. Um, and then to obviously find a readership. But uh, in my wildest dreams, you know, I, I remember before I'd even finished writing Before I Go to Sleep, I had dinner with my partner and, and I just had this, you know what you do sometimes, this wild, like, you know, oh, what if we win the lottery one day? But I actually said, what about, you know, if I write this book and then Claire Conville, who is an agent and is now my agent, loves it and then sells it around the world and then it sells a gazillion copies and a Hollywood film is made. It was pure fantasy. It was pure, I never, it just doesn't happen, does it? You know, it just doesn't happen. But no. it does happen, so. <laughs> and what's Proved wrong again. <laughs> And what's been the most surprising thing about it all? Um, the whole thing has been surprising, but I think and, uh, the, the, one of the lovely things is that I do events sometimes and people will come up to me and say, I, I didn't think I was a reader. And then I read Before I Go to Sleep and I, and I'm a re I read books now. And that's oh. obviously a great thing. But the weirdest thing was, <laughs> I think I can talk about this. I'm, I don't, anyway, I'm going to. Is, um, there's going to be a Bollywood remake <laughs> of Before I Go to Sleep. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, that's going to be interesting. Did I you ever wait. envisage places where you could break for a dance number or anything? No, no. and I re even now I'm trying to work. I mean, are they, do they all have dance numbers? I mean, they all. I think, do they? You know, Does anyone know? Yeah, they do. Yeah, okay, they do, and they yeah. all have happy endings as well, generally. Right. So I have no idea. Right. I cannot wait to to watch it. <laughs> but that's the most surreal thing that's happened probably so far. Fantastic. Well, you told. Um, the Guardian uh, a couple of years ago when you were writing this book that you were having fun writing it. Did I? You did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just wondering, I'm not going to ask if it was fun, but I'm just wondering, was this a, a different experience writing this one to writing before I go to sleep? Because the first one I imagine was a bit of an, an experiment to see if you could do it and yeah. get it published, yeah. whereas this one people were waiting for it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't obviously realise it at the time, but I wrote Before I Go to Sleep in this 
blissful, state of sort of blissful ignorance. Yeah. Uh, and I had no, no expectations other than my own. I was writing for myself primarily, and I was on a writing course, so there, uh, there were my friends and colleagues on the course, and my partner, and, uh, and I had vague ideas that, you know, maybe an agent might read it and might, might have some nice things to say about it. But, yeah. um, but then I read, and, you know, and I'm not complaining, because this is a great problem to have, you know. But when you start, it's actually four million. I think the 40 is a typo in the newspaper. But we can go with 40 if you like. Um, but, yeah. But when you've sold four million copies of a book, and, and then, you know, so I'm aware that, <laughs> you know, I'm aware that uh, people are going to be interested, you know, and, and I've got editors around the world who are all going to have an opinion now, and, yeah. and, uh, and reviewers are going to review it. Uh, and more importantly, people who've read and enjoyed Before I Go to Sleep are going to be interested, and, and it's that yeah. sense of not wanting to let people down. And for, for a long time, um, it kind of tied me in knots a little bit, because uh, I think it's a Stephen King quote, but someone, it's not an original thought, but someone had, I read somewhere, someone said, you need to write your first draft with the door closed and the second draft with the door open. And it just became very difficult to keep the door closed. You know, people were trying to, I, I had this sense all the time of people looking over my shoulder going, oh, I wouldn't put that there. Oh, that, that, yeah. I wouldn't use that line. Oh, that, you know. And then eventually, I, I just had to ignore all that, though, and go back to, to try and recreate, if you like, that, the way I work, in which I wrote the first book, which is to just write for myself again. I suppose that's part of the learning experience, yeah. isn't it? How you handle each stage. Yeah. Because it's all, you know, yeah. and it, and it's, it's all a learning. Yeah, it is a learning experience. Because now, for example, I don't know if you're going to, but if someone says to me, what's your third book about? Even though I'm quite way into it now, I, may, I, I go like this. <laughs> I don't want to say. I don't want to talk right. about it. You know. Yeah. I, mean, I will talk about it, okay. but I won't say very much. <laughs> can we ask him? Just can we not you, ask you? Okay, I won't okay. say very much. Because uh, I'm just trying to protect that, that, sort that, of space, that maybe, period of time yeah. when it's just mine and it doesn't feel yeah. like anybody else's in a way. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Second Life. Can you lay out the premise for us and tell us a bit about your main characters? Um, yes. <laughs> um, the, the, the title kind of is the giveaway, really. The title has two kind of, well, several connotations, several meanings, but the two that <coughs> kind of are relevant, really, are the, are the, are the, um, the notion of, a, of a, what I think of as a kind of parallel second life. So second life that you can be living at the same time as your first life. And the book was kind of, in some ways at least, was inspired by a blog that I used to read um, quite regularly. And it, and it was someone, it, for those who may not know, a blog is sort of an, this, in this example anyway, it was not online diary. So essentially somebody was several times a day was just writing about her day. And she wasn't famous, she wasn't, um, you know, in any way remarkable, I suppose, other than she wrote very beautifully. And she was actually an aspiring novelist, so she was, I think this was her way of, you know, getting her voice out there. Anyway, she would write about her day-to-day -day life. And I would read it, and, um, and it wasn't just me, I wasn't being a stalker, it was, you know, she had 90,000 people <laughs> reading this, okay. or 9,000, anyway, and, but, um, <laughs> depending on who you were, uh, yeah. Um, Thank you. But she would talk about quite, not intimate things, I don't mean intimate in terms of sexually intimate, I mean yeah. she would just talk about, she'd talk about things like how she was feeling, and, but also where she was going for dinner the following day, and the fact that she loved this opera, and this was her favourite perfume, and and her, her flowers, and, and she'd also talk a lot about the area of the city she lived in. And even, you know, she wouldn't say, I live on such and such a road, but she would say, oh, the number 47 bus was late again today. And, and I just realised that if, so, and I think this is probably, because we're talking like eight or nine years ago now, mm. I, think, and this, I think this was the fledgling thriller writer in me starting to come out. But I just thought, I remember thinking, if somebody wanted to, they could quite easily accidentally 
bump into her. And she'd post photographs of herself as well, so, you know, you okay. knew what she looked like. Um, and, and pretend to be, you know, her ideal romantic partner if they so desired. Because oh, I could just imagine a scenario where somebody was saying, oh, God, that's my favourite opera too. And, you know, oh, God, you like such and such perfume, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, but it, I started thinking about how much we give away online or we can't, without even necessarily realising it. And I think it's, even in that nine, even that not quite a decade since I was reading this woman's blog, um, I, you know, people even more now. I mean, I'm, I've got uh, Twitter, so two Facebook, two Facebook accounts. You know, one for me and one for S. J. Watson. Uh, Instagram, and that's before you even start to to factor in the dating websites and then the sex websites as well, which I may or may not have. Uh, but you know, but people do, and, yeah. and so I just start to think about how many different ways people pr- present themselves online, and yeah. how you may behave in a certain way on Twitter that you wouldn't behave in real life, and wouldn't behave in Facebook. I mean, I'm wittering on now, aren't I? But I mean, I was thinking about just a couple of years ago that the terrible, terrible abuse that women got when they dared to suggest that perhaps we ought to have a woman on one of our banknotes. You yeah. know, um, mm-hmm. awful things, and yeah. I, and I, you know, and I'm pretty sure that. Most of the people who were wishing these vile things to happen to these women wouldn't say that to them in real, or say that to anybody in real life. But no. behind this, um, with this veneer of an, or, or with this mask of anonymity, people can behave in very odd ways. So that's the first way yeah. <laughs> that I was thinking of second yeah. life. But I was also thinking about second life in terms of different stages of life. Uh, and I wanted to write a book about somebody who is living a very comfortable life. Um, Julia, the main character, is living in Islington uh, in a nice house and she has a nice husband who is worst fault, I suppose, is is perhaps a little bit remote and a little bit boring. Um, You know, she has a nice relationship with a son that she adopted from her her sister's, Mm -hmm. uh, is the birth mother, you know, fairly good relationship with her sister until quite recently. I wanted to, but but actually, I wanted to write about somebody who their life hasn't always been like that. Um, and one of the other triggers for the book was a very good friend of mine said to me that she goes to pick her children up from the school gates. And she said, um, and all of my friends are there, all, you know, all the other moms, they tend to be the moms, but are there. And, um, and we're all, you know, we're all very happy. We're all fine with this. But actually, we're all also thinking, I used to take drugs and go to raves and stay up until six in the morning and and what happened and it's that sense I wanted to write about somebody who has had a very different life and doesn't necessarily miss it it's not about missing it but it's just about is that is the old them the first life if you like Mm. still part of them or is it something they've completely left behind so yeah I don't know if that's answered the question well so you've mentioned yeah Julia and yeah. her husband and yes so you yeah. covered your, yeah, you covered your yeah. character well could we have a reading from yes. the book yes <coughs> we could oh you want me to do it <laughs> I'm joking uh, I'm going to read, read. <laughs> I'm going to read from the first uh, chapter not the whole chapter um, so I've kind of I've kind of mentioned Julia uh, who, who is the narrator so it's again it's in the, uh, a female voice in the first person um, I'm going to read she's Basically, uh, she's been to visit an art gallery, and it's an art gallery in London with an exhibition of photographs. And the, photo, the, ga- the exhibition is called Partied Out, and the photographs are all of a certain type. They're all taken in that kind of, do you remember the kind of heroin chic era of the 90s where all the models looked very thin and emaciated and unwell, unlike now. And, um, <laughs> but when it was a particular thing, 
Uh, and we learn that she's gone particularly to look at one photograph of a man looking at his own reflection in the mirror. He's naked from the waist up. And we, we realise this photograph has a, has a certain amount of pain for her uh, and that she took it. She used to be a photographer. And I think that's probably all I need to say, other than she's now having lunch with her best friend, Adrienne, and, and it's Adrienne talking, I think. Uh, no, it's not. It's Julia talking. Sorry. Let's read back a little bit. Have you heard from Kate? Said Julia. <clears throat> I looked down at my drink. I hadn't wanted to ask the question, not so soon, but it's out now. I'm not sure which answer I'd prefer, yes or no. She sips her wine. Not for a while, have you? About three weeks ago. And? I shrug. The usual. Middle of the night. Yep, I sigh. I think back to my sister's last call. Two in the morning, even later for her over there in Paris. She'd sounded out of it, drunk, I guessed. She wants Connor back. She doesn't know why I won't let her have him. It isn't fair, and, by the way, she isn't the only person who thinks Hugh and I are being selfish and impossible. She was just saying the same old thing. Maybe you need to talk to her, again, I mean, when she's not so angry. I smile. You know as well as I do how much good that's likely to do, and anyway, I can't get hold of her. She won't answer her mobile, and if I ring the landline, I just get her flatmate who tells me nothing. No, she's made her mind up. Suddenly, after all this time, all she wants in the world is to look after Connor. And she thinks Hugh and I are stopping her for our own selfish reasons. She hasn't paused, even for a moment, to wonder how Connor might feel, what he might want. She certainly hasn't asked him. Once again, it's all about her. I stop talking. Adrienne knows the rest. I don't need to carry on. She knows the reasons Hugh and I took my sister's son, that for all these years Kate's been happy with the situation. What neither of us knows is why that's changed. Will you talk to her, I say. She takes a deep breath and closes her eyes. For a moment, I think she's going to tell me I have to sort it out myself. I can't come running to her every time I argue with my sister. It's the sort of thing my father used to say to me. But she doesn't. She just smiles. I'll try. <clears throat> we order and eat our lunch. We discuss our mutual friends. She asks me if I've seen Fatima recently. Did I know Ali has a new job? She wonders whether I'm planning on going to Dee's drinks party at the weekend. Then she says it's time she left. She has a meeting. I tell her I'll catch up with her on Saturday. I can't resist going through the gift shop on my way out. They'd wanted to use my picture of Marcus on the cover of the brochure, but I never replied to the email, and instead there's a picture of an androgynous-looking guy sucking on a lollipop. He reminds me of Frosty, and I flick through the book before moving over to the postcards arranged on the display rack. Normally I'd buy a few, but today I just get one, Marcus in the mirror. For a moment, I want to tell the cashier that it's mine, that I took it for myself, and that though for years I've actively avoided it, I'm still glad they used it in the exhibition and I've had the chance to own it again. But I don't. I say nothing, just murmur, thanks, and then put the card in my bag and leave the gallery. Despite the February chill, I walk most of the way home, through Covent Garden and Hoburn, down Theobald's Road in the direction of Gray's Inn Road, and at first I can think of nothing but Marcus and our time in Berlin all those years ago. But by the time I reach Rosebury Avenue, I've managed to move on from the past, and instead I'm thinking about what's happening here, now. I'm thinking about my sister and hoping against hope that Adrienne can make her see sense, even though I know she won't be able to. I'm going to have to talk to Kate myself. I'll be firm but kind. I'll remind her that I love her and want her to be happy, but I'll also tell her that Connor is almost 14 now, that Hugh and I have worked hard to give him a stable life and it's important it isn't upset. My priority has to be to make her realise that things are best left as they are. For the first time, I allow myself to consider that Hugh and I probably ought to see a lawyer. I turn the corner into our road. There's a police car parked a few doors from the house. 
but it's our front door that's open. I begin to run, my mind empties of everything but the need to see my son. I don't stop until I'm in the house, in the kitchen, and I see Hugh standing in front of me, talking to a woman in uniform. I take in Connor's towel and trunks drying on the radiator, then Hugh and the officer turn to look at me. She's wearing an expression of perfect, studied neutrality, and I know it's the way Hugh looks when he's delivering bad news. My chest tightens. I hear myself shout as if in a dream. Where's Connor? I'm saying. Hugh, where's our son? But he doesn't answer. All I can see, he's all I can see in the room. His eyes are wide. I can tell that something terrible has happened, something indescribable. Tell me, I want to shout, but I don't. I can't move. My lips won't form words. My mouth opens and closes. I swallow. I'm underwater. I can't breathe. I watch as Hugh steps towards me, try to shake him off when he takes my arm, and then find my voice. Tell me, I say over and over, and a moment later he opens his mouth and speaks. It's not Connor, he says, but there's barely enough time for the relief that floods my blood to register before he says, I'm sorry, darling, it's Kate. <laughs> Gas. <laughs> So, Stephen, in the book, you've got some great themes that, that you're working with. Um, you've got the, we've talked about the unreliability of, you know, online identity mm. and how we make ourselves sort of more, quite op more vulnerable and open online than we might imagine mm. and about um, the safety of, you know, middle class life and the responsibility and how we handle that and also addiction mm. when, when it comes to Julia and whether that's ever really in the past. Mm. And I read that you said that the addiction theme was the one that really sort of unlocked the book for you yeah. when you were trying to, to get I'd be, it right. I've been playing with a lot of these thoughts and ideas and characters for, for a while. Um, probably when I said to the gardener I was having fun with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then a very good friend of mine, we were talking about addiction, um, particularly alcoholism. And um, a very good friend of mine said, well, you know, addiction is a very patient disease. And that phrase, for some reason, just really lodged, and I just began to see addiction as being a key theme in the book, which I probably hadn't really realised until that point. Mm. Um, and I, I almost started to see addiction as um, another <coughs> character in a way, in a weird way. Uh, it, I, it's, it's not a book about an, an al a recovering alcoholic who starts drinking again, but, I, but it is about a book. It's a book, rather, about... Uh, someone who thinks that they've conquered their addiction mm. and every time because because julia as well as using uh drugs and hard drugs uh she also was an alcoholic and uh every time she 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 feels herself reach for the glass of wine mm. or, or 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 whatever and stops herself she thinks yeah i'm still okay i've conquered this this is not a problem mm -hmm. but what she's not seeing um is that her addiction has just gone the other way around, if you like, gone through the back door and is, is presenting itself in a different way. And she's addicted to something else. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it became... And I, I read a lot about addiction and spoke to people in the course of... You know, I've mm -hmm. got a much more... I think I've got much more of an understanding of mm. addiction than I did when I, before I wrote this book, yeah. Yeah, because it sort of threatens to destabilise her all the time, doesn't yeah. it, as she's trying to sort of find out mm. what happened with Kate, as, yeah. as, we found, as we found out there. But also there's the addictive nature of her sort of online life yeah. as well, isn't yeah. it? She keeps being drawn back there mm. and that pulls her into sort of a yeah. darker and darker place. A darker and darker place, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the allure of, yeah. of being somebody else for a while, I think. Um, 
you know, what I learned about addiction is that you know, addiction isn't about whether you have a bottle of wine a, a night or whether you have a bottle of wine only three nights a week or whether you, you know, whether you can drink, you can wait until 6 p.m. before you have your first drink. That, I, I realise it's not about that. It's about whether, you, whether for you the drinking or the, or the sex or the drugs or the whatever it is you're addicted to, you're using that as an escape from pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this is a book about somebody who, who, is, who is in pain. I mean, what the reading doesn't quite give you is that her sister Kate has been murdered, has been found in an alleyway, killed in an apparently random attack mm-hmm. um, in Paris, where she lives. Um, so so I, I put my character, who is kind of a recovering alcoholic, under a... It's that quote, isn't it, about stick a character between and throw rock, rocks at them. I thought, yeah, I'll throw massive, great big rocks at this character and see what she does, you know, uh, and see how her yeah. addiction manifests itself. Yeah, she deals with a lot. And so when you had an idea of the, the story that you wanted to tell, why did you feel that the way to do that then was with, through the eyes of another female protagonist, as you did with Christine and Before I Go to Sleep? Um, I wish I could say I sat down and decided these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of never sat down and decided my thing would be to write female first-person narration. Um, again, the character just kind of came to me. Um, I think much more than the first book. I think with Before I Go to Sleep, I don't think that could have been the same book if it had been narrated by a man. Mm. I think it would have been... I joke that it would have just been... He would have just said, well, I can't remember anything, never mind, I'll watch telly. You know, and that <laughs> is a joke. But... Uh, <laughs> I think it would have been a very different book. Uh, yeah. I, I think this book pro- possibly could have been, could without have been that much of changing, could have yeah. been narrated by a man. But um, uh, it just felt, again, it just felt like the right thing to do. These, these are decisions I, I you know, it's, it's like whether to write in the present or past tense. Yeah. I don't feel like I ever make them. They just kind of come yeah. and it just sort of works. Well, it's interesting just to see how it comes together and mm. how it sort of how, you know, the finished product mm. came I mean, around. Yeah, and I suppose I am... I am particularly interested, perhaps, in the place or in the situation that women find themselves in society and the pressures that women find themselves under that men don't. And I know I'm generalising a lot there. And I said that at an event not that far away from here. Somebody stood up and walk, walked out at that point. Um, a woman did, actually. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know... My female friends just have pressures and, and experiences that my male friends don't. Yeah. Um, and I think those things interest me, so looking at them from a female perspective. Yeah, well, it, it did strike me that, you know, a lot of the really best-selling psychological thrillers at the moment, like Girl on a Train, Gone Girl, Before I Go to Sleep, they, they, they all effectively sort of explore their themes using a female protagonist and mm. I just I thought that was is it about kind of you know these these women who are un- unknowable in some way unpredictable yeah, in some and way also, I mean especially with the girl on the train and gone girl they're they're both fairly unlikable characters in some mm-hmm. ways and I mean, that's they quite are. an interesting an interesting thing um, I think they're very good examples of domestic noir and uh, Julia is in the audience who invented that phrase, and I think it's a great way of describing these books. Of, yes. you know, books that are set within the home environment, <coughs> you know, <coughs> and, and, and usually they're not, they're not people running around, you know, serial killers running around with ski masks on. And I have nothing against those books, you know, um, <coughs> but they're, 
I think it's much more frightening to, to talk about and to examine the dangers that come from within your immediate circle, whether it be your home or your immediate circle of friends and family. And, uh, you know, there's a lot about trust and about who you can trust and how people can hurt you mm. who, who you don't, didn't think would hurt you and people who aren't what they say they are and aren't who they say they are in some examples. And that's all, I think that's much more scary because... And also within your own head and your own recollection, yeah, as yeah. with Christine, that is frightening. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and the same with the girl on the train as well. You know, it's, this yeah. is somebody who doesn't know, doesn't know what happened. What happened and... Yeah. Um, um, I can't remember what your question was, but maybe, hopefully just I answered it. We're just chatting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and so before we're going to have some questions uh, from the audience, but I just have a maybe a, f a couple more before we we get the microphones out. And I just wanted to ask about the the violence um, in the book or the threat of violence. Mm. Um, and I was I was thinking about you know before I go to sleep as well. And so both you know Julia here and Christine there, they do encounter mm. violence they do get injured at, at, at times and mm. and it's it's all it's in the pursuit of kind of unraveling what happened or, or discovering themselves mm. a little bit more as well and i'm sure you gave a lot of thought to kind of the role of that in the book i found it quite um sometimes it was difficult mm. to read and and i just wanted to get an idea of your thinking about how to use violence within within the book and the role well, it plays? I mean, crime novels usually, you know, in fact, many novels, not just crime novels, they often have something very violent at their core, you know, murder often. <laughs> I know, but, but um, when we're talking about it we're being talking about domestic violence within, really, we? or, yeah, or and happening to the protagonist, yeah. Yeah, um, I, you know, it happens, doesn't it? And I think it, it needs to be talked about. Um, I don't really have a lot more to say than that. No, actually. I'm sorry. I, I was um, thinking, you know, with the crime novels we talked mm. about, perhaps in the past, you know, there is a crime and mm. then it gets solved, whereas mm. the, the violence seems much closer. Yeah, well, here. I suppose, again, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm interested in the violence that people encounter, ordinary, in inverted commas, people encounter, perhaps. Yeah. You know, the violence that we, we perpetrate on each other. Um, um, you know, and it, it's very common. I mean, most, it's far more likely that a woman is going to be, I mean, I don't want to be too, no children in either, but you know, it's far more likely the woman is going to be raped by her husband than raped by a stranger in an alleyway, for example. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be talked about. I, I, hope, I hope I'm not doing it in a disrespectful way. I would be very upset if, if, uh, if people thought that it was. I, that's certainly not my intention. Um, or, and I hope, it's, I hope it doesn't come across as gratuitous. Um, Although they're in this book, there are reasons which it might, I suppose, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Read the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just before we have some questions, I wanted to just uh, ask you to tell us a little bit about some news which maybe isn't kind of necessarily breaking today, but it's kind of officially breaking today yeah. about, about Second Life. Yes. Uh, Reese Witherspoon has just bought the rights to make into film, so that's we just I just heard. I mean, it, it kind of leaked a few weeks ago, but I couldn't talk about it because it wasn't official. So tell us what you know. I don't know any more oh. than that, really. <laughs> <laughs> that is the news. Um, what I do know is it takes Reese Witherspoon ages to find a pen um, to sign. <laughs> to, 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 to sign. To sign. But, um, no, uh, that's very exciting. Uh, they're looking at screenwriters now. I'm having nothing to do with it. I didn't really have very much to do with it before I go to sleep. That's I was right. there on set almost, well, not every day, but like every few days, like some kind of mm -hmm. child with a popcorn is watching and like, oh, there's Nicole Kidman, you know. Um, but this is, you know, if it happens, and it's a big if, you know, but if it happens, it's going to all be 
over there somewhere. So I'm Did you have the opportunity the... to be involved and maybe write the screenplay? Well, it's funny, I had a conversation. I had a, it's actually Reese Witherspoon's production company <coughs> that right. bought the rights. And um, I had a conversation with, with one of her colleagues. Uh, and <laughs> it's quite funny because she just said, you could, she said, would you be interested in writing the script? And when I said, I don't think so, I could just really? almost sense, all the way from L.A. or wherever she was, the relief when I said, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 it's not my, it's not my, um, my skill set isn't, I mean, I'm intrigued by the idea of writing a script one day, but I just think I'd mess it up, so let someone else do it. And then if it's great, I can take the credit, and if it's rubbish, I can <laughs> say it had nothing to Distance do with me. Distance yourself yeah, from it, yeah. yeah. Should we have some questions from the audience now? We've got some roving mics, so if you just wait till there's a lady here in a turquoise top, just in the second row here. Thank you. Hi, it's just following on from your um, uh, non-screenplay debut. <laughs> um, so how much rights do you have? How far can they deviate before I from your book? <coughs> I don't really know. I mean... Um, the contract is like a bazillion pages long, and I don't understand any of it. Um, so I just sign when my agent tells me to sign, you know. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't really have any right, right, <laughs> rights at all. I mean, I suppose at a certain point, I could ar possibly argue, you know, if they decide, if they'd done before I go to sleep, for example, and decide to set it in space with cowboys, or I don't know. I, <laughs> I suppose I could have said, we not, this is not really anything to do with my book anymore so I could have sued them for breach of contract I don't know but I don't know I don't, I don't really know how far away they can deviate before it becomes a, you know I have any rights I don't you don't have many rights at all you kind of sign them away but that's okay uh, just here thank, thank you um, I wondered if I could ask you about how you see identity taking taking shape I, I love to the way you described that very disjointed life so many parents have mm. experienced and and in your books and and what journalists would call below the line comments which are vitriolic mm. nastiness i mean can, can it can this be integrated into one one identity well i don't know i mean i i think about this a lot i, I and in some ways the first book it touches on these themes as well about identity and and, and who are we uh, Someone pointed out, and it's true, I think I have a bit of an obsession about bathrooms. Both of my books begin in a bathroom, albeit in this one, she's looking at a photograph of somebody in a bathroom. But uh, the, bathroom in, the bathroom intrigues me because it's, generally speaking, it's the only room in the house that has a lock on the door, and it has a mirror in it, and it often is where you go and you're naked. Uh, and it, is that when you're most close to who you actually are? I mean... Or is that just another mask, really? You know, is that just another sense, another version of yourself? You know, I'm a different person. I mean, and this is not unique to me or unique to authors. This is, everybody's the same. You know, I'm a different person sitting here now than, than I was uh, an hour ago, you know, with my friends and family. And a different person again if I'm at home with my partner. And a different person again when I used to be an audiologist, you know. And so who is me? Which is me? Or am I all of them? Or am I a different somebody, you know... I don't know what the answer is, really. Um, and I suppose that's what, in, in a way, what this book is about, is do we carry all of these multiple selves all the time? Um, and it, it's, I think it's quite shocking how 
again, if you read the bottom half of the internet, how horrible some people can be. Uh, and is it something that, there's, you probably know, there's, many of you will know her at work at least, anyway, Tess Gerritsen, crime writer, uh, said that um, the equation is, let me get this right, access plus anonymity equals asshole. And it's true, you know, often people just behave in very, very different ways when they, when they, when they feel that there's no chance of a repercussion. Um, and I suppose it fascinates me and I'm intrigued by how thin is the veneer of civilization that we all have, you know, how deep do you have to dig before you get to savagery? Heavy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another question from the audience just here, thanks. Hi, I, I just wondered, uh, because your first book was translated into a film quite quickly, how much did that influence the way you were writing your second and third? Did you see the way you were writing through the prism of it perhaps being a film? Um, <clears throat> in a weird way, kind of. I mean, I didn't write Second Life with a view to it becoming a film. Because I think you can always tell when, when somebody's tried, is written a book because they just desperately hope that someone's going to pick it up and turn it into a movie. So I didn't do that. Um, but, you know, I suppose the fact that the first one had become a film meant that it was there in my head as a possibility. But also, there's a, there's a moment... Um, I was on set for Before I Go to Sleep, and they, they were shooting on location, and they were shooting... I don't know if you've seen the film, but they were shooting... There's a moment where Nicole Kidman comes out of the... She runs, rushes out of the house, and it's tipping it down of rain, and she's soaking wet, and her hair's clustered to her face, and her makeup is running. And it's this very emotional scene that she has with Colin Firth. And I was there when they were shooting that. And it's interesting. Well, I don't know if it's interesting, but I thought it was interesting. It was a really rainy day in Surrey where they were shooting it. And they had to wait for the rain to stop to turn the rain machine on and then to do the shot. <laughs> and I was saying, I said to the producer, I said to Liza, I said, why? She said, well, real rain doesn't show up on camera. So you can't shoot rainy scenes on a rainy day. Uh, anyway, that's a by the by. Anyway. So they did two takes of this because uh, they get, they'd only got two costumes for Nicole Kidman and the first one got soaked and they put the dry one on and she, that was it. So they had two takes of this pivotal right. moment in the film. The costume department decided that there was only two takes possible. But um, she was obviously soaking and just you know, you know, not looking glamorous at all. And I, she was coming out of the house that they were using as, as uh, makeup or dressing room or something and I was going into it to do an interview. And I had a very quick conversation with her. And I, she was looking, you know, just... Uh, wet and I just and f freezing cold day in March really cold a couple of years ago and I just said you know for the record I said, I said but you might be interested that in the book this scene that you've just shot takes place, takes place in a nice cosy living room by a roaring log fire <laughs> and Kidman just said to me and she wasn't being funny or nasty or you know she's very charming and polite and lovely but she just, she just said yeah but this is more dramatic isn't it and I just thought you're right actually you're totally right so I think what I do do when I write now is I'm always thinking can I set this in a rainy car no I'm always thinking but I'm always thinking <laughs> is there a way that I could that I could add another layer to this or another another uh, layer of interest or drama to this scene by perhaps setting it in a slightly more filmic dramatic kind of way I told that to Rowan the producer and direct, uh, the, sorry, the director and screenwriter before I go to sleep, Rowan Joffe, and he said to me, steady on, you're doing my job for me. <laughs> so, but, you know, so I in that respect, it possibly has changed the way I write, yeah. Okay. So you're, again, learning kind of from them, maybe? Yeah, well, I, yeah. Hope, yeah, I, I hope I'm always learning. I, yeah. I, never, I never want to not be learning or yeah. not feel that I'm learning But you're something. not doing it in, in sense because you think 
this will be, you know, another great film. Yeah, this will be, no, it's just no. A, I mean, yeah, if, I, if I was to do that, it would have been about a third as long. Uh, yeah, screenplay. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, okay. Another question from the audience? Just here, please. Hi. I don't know how much time you spend with actors normally, but I just wondered... How much when time I spend with actors? With actors. Right. Um, but when you meet Colin, Colin Firth and uh, Nicole Kidman, are you starstruck, or do you think, well, that's my Christine, so she's sort of... I know her. Um, I, I get starstruck, yeah. Um, I was really lucky, actually, because um, if Liza, the producer, I'll introduce to Nicole. And I was like, Nicole who? Oh, God, okay. <laughs> And um, I was on set, and uh, she, I think she knocked on her dressing room, and nothing, no answer. So she, she went, oh, she, I shouldn't say this. Should you oh, not? We're not being part anyway, anyway, she wasn't available. And um, sorry, it's not that interesting a story. Tell She's it. just being Tell a bit us. difficult. I was told she was just being a bit difficult that day, so you probably won't get to know. Anyway, this is rubbish. It's not a very good story at all. Um, what am I saying? Yeah, and then, so anyway, so I was there, on, and the thing about a film set, which I didn't really realise, is it's a really boring place, actually. You know, it's, most of the time, it, I mean, it's, still, it's tremendously exciting to be there, you know, obviously, but, it's, but once you're there and you're over the excitement of, oh, my God, there's lights and there's cables and there's people running around with clipboards and co cups of coffee and all that, it's not, not a lot happens for long periods of time. So um, I was like, looking at my phone, I don't know, playing solitaire or something, or doing whatever, and I just looked up, and there's Nicole Kidman stood there with her hand out waiting to say hello to me, and I think because it was such, oh, hello, suddenly I was like, I, I just was normal. But yeah, I was incredibly starstruck. Colin first was very lovely, actually. He was a bit, we had quite a long chat about the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or something like that. But I do get starstruck, yeah. Uh, but I get starstruck when I meet Ian Rankin and people like that, you know. I, I just... It's very exciting. Uh, another question? Oh, uh, well, we'll have one from the back and then we'll come down here again. Before um, I go to sleep, um, did, you, did you write any... Write Anything before that? Did you have little, you know, short stories, or did you do anything before that, or did you, did you just yeah, I mean, forge into it? Of course, the, the popular sort of narrative is I woke up one day and started to be a writer, and then just before I go to sleep came out. No, I've been writing my whole life, to some extent or another. It's it, it's always been there, um, and uh, um, you know there have been some quite long periods where I wasn't writing very much at all. But I, even then, I was still I still had a notebook that I was carrying around with me, and I was jotting down ideas or titles or characters or whatever. So it's always been there. And, but I, 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 and I'd written stories, and I think short stories were incre incredibly difficult. Um, I'd had a go, and I'd never written one I was really very happy with. I'd started several novels and then abandoned them after something you know, between three and 30 pages, usually. Um, I'd written, I'd written a, a whole novel just before, before I go to sleep, which I then edited, edited and decided was utter, utter rubbish. But I see that as my kind of apprenticeship, if you like. That, that's my bottom draw novel that, that will remain there no matter what happens in 50 years' time. Um, <laughs> actually, I should probably burn it, shouldn't I? Um, so, yeah, I've always written, but I've never written anything I was, I, I was prepared to show anybody. Uh, I'm incredibly... I'm quite a perfectionist, so I wasn't... I, I, I didn't want to put something out there until... 
I was pretty sure it was okay. And when you went on the course that you've mentioned, yeah. had you already started working on Before I Go to Sleep or was that something that evolved? Well, no, I'd started it, but three days before. <laughs> no, I, I was accepted on the course in the December and the course started in February. So I decided I could either take to the course the novel that I'd just abandoned and try and fix it and try and bring it to some kind of, you know, to, to finish it properly. Mm. Or I could take something brand new and start from scratch. And I decided I would learn much more if I started with nothing. It just started from, you know, a new project. And then I didn't know what I wanted to, you know, what my subject would be or what my story would be. And I was reading an obituary of a man called Henry Malaison. He was mentioned in the back of the book, who is an amnesiac who just died, obviously, because it's his obituary. And it described his story. And I read this, and I just had this mental image of a woman looking in a mirror and thinking, that's not me, basically. Mm -hmm. I'm <laughs> paraphrasing. But, um, and, so I, and, and so I spent like two weeks looking at other ideas, but keep, I kept on being pulled back to this one. And yeah, and I just decided I'll get a bit of a head start, so I started writing on the Monday, and the course started on the Wednesday. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't a kind of thing that had been fermenting for a long time. It mm -hmm. was quite new. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a question just down here. Very briefly, what was the course? Was it worth going, and if so, why? <laughs> the course was at the Faber Academy, it was in London. It was uh, six months writing a novel. It was actually called Writing a Novel from Start to Finish. But apparently they had to drop that title because people were trying to sue them because they didn't finish their novel. Um, uh, it was the first time they'd run that course. Um, I, I do get asked quite often if it was worth doing. And, and I, I can't answer that question. It was absolutely worth it for me. It was totally what I needed at the time. I'd just gone part-time at work. I, I, I had this sense of a new chapter, if you forgive the pun, opening a beginning in my life and I thought this course will, will kick start me and, I, and it will give me some focus and I'll you know it was totally the right thing for me to do but I know of one other writer who has had an in, has had an enormously successful novel that uh, she was writing on that course not the same course as me but that's uh, the same course as me they're not the same time as me uh, and she thinks the course was totally the wrong thing for her to do and and it set her back and she wishes she hadn't done it. So it's just down to what is right for you as an individual at the time. Um, what was the other part of your question or did I answer it? Did I answer it? Yeah. Why? For, well, for me, it just, um, it was the first time I'd ever been surrounded by people who took writing just seriously, really, I suppose, and, it, and, and understood it as it's, it's not a hobby. It's not, it's something I have to do. Uh, and, I was, and it was really great to be, to me, to be um, in a room with six other people who felt the same way. And, and, you know, and our, first guest, our first guest tutor was Andrew Motion, and he was talking to us about how he writes his poems. And, and although you know, a lot of it wasn't directly relevant, you, know, you can't help but be inspired at the very least if you're in a room with people like that. So it was great for me. And, and, it, and also, I suppose, it demystified the whole process. I think... If you rewind to before I did the course, I had this idea of a book deal as being, you know, you had to be married to, you know, someone famous ideally, or married to someone famous at least, or you had to have won the Bridport Prize, or you needed to have published 18 mm. short stories, or you needed, the, you know, uh, and even then agents were fighting you off with shotguns because they don't like authors, and, 
and, and it just felt like this impossible, impossible thing. And, and it really demystified all that. And, you, and I kind of realised, without being too Pollyannaish about it, I just realised actually the publishing world is desperately looking for debut authors because they want to find the next girl on the train, the next gone girl that wasn't a debut, the next before I go to sleep, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so it all comes down to whether you can write the book, a book that's good enough. And so it did make, it made it feel possible. It made me realise that there's not this huge barrier that I have to scale. The, the only thing that's stopping me is, is my own, whether I'm, whether I'm talented enough, but also whether I'm prepared to put the work in. And so there was. But there's luck involved too, isn't, isn't there? Or is there? Because, you well, know, in terms of... yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was lucky in that I was bored at work and browsing the internet when I saw an advert for the Faber course. And, you know, yeah. I might not have found that. Yeah. So I was lucky in that, in that um, um, you know, I, I, Claire Conville, who's an amazing agent, came along to the last night of the course and I... And I, and I went and spoke to her about my book. But even that isn't really luck, because no, you went I put and myself in that her. position. Yeah, you you know. went and talked to I mean, I always say to people, um, whenever, I'm in a, whenever, whenever I'm in a room full of aspiring novelists, I often ask for a show of hands about what, why do you think... You know, or people shout out you know, why you think most books don't get published. And they will say stuff like, you know, oh, you need to have won this, or you need to have been married and be famous, or this, that, and the other. And I say, no, most books aren't published because they, they're just not good enough. They really mm. aren't good enough. My, ag my agency gets 400 unsolicited manuscripts a week or something. And, you know, the reason that most, most of those aren't published is because they're actually not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I always say, if you're prepared to put the work in and write a book that is good enough, and, and you're, I mean, no agent is going to knock on your door and say, I've heard you've written a really good book. You know, you need to put yourself out there. But that's not as difficult as it's... As it, the, as it's presented, you know. Yeah, it's not actually, as many barriers. Yeah, there aren't as many barriers. People. You know, e If you email an agent's assistant and say, I've written this, this manuscript and I think Claire Conville or Johnny Geller or whoever might be interested because, then they'll, they'll have a look. They'll only look at the first page. I better make it good. But they'll have, you know, it's not, it's not, um, yeah. it's not needle in a haste. Well, it is kind of needle. I'm a bit It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> Do we have another question? We do. Okay. Right. Uh, the lady with glasses here. Hello. Hello. Um, I just Inventor of domestic noir. Oh, now <laughs> then. Um, I just wanted to know about research. At what point do you do research? And, and, and does it feed into your writing at an early stage? Or do you, do you kind of look at it as, as you need to do it? Or do you fall down a research hole or what? Um, I don't fall down a research hole. I fall down a Facebook hole quite often. Or a Twitter hole, uh, but no. Um, I tend to research as I'm going along because I don't know what I need to know until I need to know it. If that makes sense. Um, um, so I was, you know, and I do, I do a lot of my research actually online. You know, I do a lot of research by going on s Street View or whatever, and just saying, okay. I mean, obviously, there are certain locations in the books that I need to actually physically go to just to get a feel for them, but. Um, I sort of wait until I kind of that becomes like usually second draft actually, but then the stuff like the stuff about addiction that was an ongoing. You know, every time I saw an article or I googled addiction or read about addiction or had the opportunity to meet people who'd been addicts, so it's kind of an ongoing process. I don't do a, I don't do a block of research and then write the book. It's 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 more kind of gradual than that. 
Can I just follow on from that then? So with Christine, who's, who's, who has a very particular condition, mm. did, you, did, you, did you sort of make that up and then go back and adjust after you'd written by yeah, research? Yeah, I didn't even adjust it that much. <laughs> I mean, Christine's condition doesn't really exist, really. I mean, well, so just I just to be clear, this, that, is yeah. the, this is the first book the, before yeah, I go the first to sleep. Book, my, yeah. The character has, has um, anterograde and retrograde amnesia. Which I mean, we could, I could talk about this forever. Well, I couldn't talk about it forever, but I could go on. But which basically means she can't remember the past, but she can't form new memories either. But most people who have that condition, they can only remember things for eight minutes ish at tops. And there's some. If anyone's interested, there's some really heartbreaking and very, very fascinating footage of a very famous, well, very famous within the world of amnesiacs, obviously. But uh, a, a, a man called Clive Waring, who who. Um, who lost his uh, memory as a result of a brain injury, I think, or an illness he had. Uh, and there's some heartbreaking footage of him with his wife. His wife would stand up. He lives in a care home. His wife would stand up and go to make a cup of tea, and she'd come back in the room, and he would stand up from the couch and go, where have you been? You left me here. And he thinks he hasn't seen her for ye literally for years. And she's like, we, we just, we just, I just, I've just been making us our tea. So, um, and, but I knew I wanted to, so that's more common. In fact, that's how these these types of conditions present themselves generally. But I knew I wanted to write a book in the about this type of, char of this character, but in the first person. So I thought, unless I'm going to write a really weird experimental novel where every page, you know, there's no narrative at all, really. I thought I've got to give her a chunk of time that, she can, that things can happen during before she loses it again. So I wrote this, what I thought, I thought I'd made up this condition. But then, actually, since then, I've... Uh, there have been a couple of people, a couple of cases of people who genuinely do have it, and it's mm -hmm. thought to be... And interest, I mean, this is interesting, but Nicole Kidman wouldn't play the role until Rowan Joffrey convinced her it, it, it could happen. She was like, I need to believe that it could be real. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the general idea is that actually, if, it's, if you're... Because amnesia can either be due to a physical trauma or an emotional trauma or a combination, obviously... But the, the general thought is you can have what's called psychogenic amnesia, where there is no real physical injury in the brain, but your, brain, your, your mind is telling you, I'm, I'm blanking all of this. So it could theoretically happen, but it's not very... It, was kind, it felt like an invented condition as I was writing it. But I thought... See, my, my golden rule with research is if it's believable to the majority of people, the layperson, mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't... I said to myself, I don't mind if a neuropsychologist or an expert in memory is in an audience in an event and says, actually, that wouldn't quite happen, I'd be like, okay, as long as most people can go with it, then I'm uh -huh. kind of happy. Because it's the way you explore wider yeah. themes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a question a couple of rows back. Just there, yeah. Hi, I just Hi. wondered why you chose to publish your book under SJ rather than your first name. Right. Um, was one of those great moments when my agent suggested, suggested something to me that I was about to suggest to her. We were about to send the book out. I remember she said to me, are you very attached to your name? She said, <laughs> so not particularly. Um, um, I felt very strongly uh, that the, the book, before I go to see it, failed completely if somebody read it and thought, this is clearly a bloke because women don't think like that. I thought the whole thing doesn't work. And although I, you know, I'd shown it to several people who women who had gone? Yeah, this is yeah, this is this is fine. Um, I still needed to be certain before I let it out into the world or risk that. Uh, and so uh, Claire, my agent, said, "We'll send it out under your initials and see what happens." And I won't mention your gender in my letter. And then it was very reassuring when we got 
a few people who would email back and say, what's she like, because she written anything else? <laughs> and even when she said, actually, she's a he, uh, one of my publishers demanded to see a photograph of me, uh, which is very, very gratifying. And it's always lovely when people come up to me and say, I thought you were a woman. You know, it's very flattering in the writing. <laughs> and it's worth growing a beard to try and stop my hand. But, um, uh, but then after we sent it, so we sent the book out like that, and after that, it just felt like the right. It felt like that was my writing persona, and I mean, uh, I need it much less now because I'm more confident now. But I, I'm I, I'm quite a shy person, and so it was quite helpful when it first started to take off that I could have there was there was the S. J. Watson, who would come to events like this and who would do interviews and and he would you know. But then there was the Steve, and you know we've kind of we've kind of merged into one now. I think. Um, but it was quite nice for me to have this kind of mask again, a mask that I could wear, which was S.J. Watson. It was my publisher's decision to go with the whole, well, let's write a, bio, a bio on the um, book jacket that doesn't mention my gender. But it's quite interesting that uh, some of my publishers uh, insisted on using Steve or Stephen, and I was like, why? And they said, because nobody in this country will buy a book that they think possibly even might be written by a woman. Which I was like, yeah, that's what I thought as well. But I have no power. I mean, someone, I said that to somebody once, and they said, well, why didn't you insist? I don't have that kind of power. It, the book just comes. I don't know what it looks like usually. Um, mm. But yeah, so it's kind of... Uh, it's funny, because I thought it might be quite a nice way of trying to remove my gender from any equation, but actually it's kind of made it quite a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. It's intriguing, isn't mm. it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions. Can you put your hands up so I can see you? Well, I could ask one and then I'll come back just to give people a final uh, chance. It was just to say, um, I read that you've got books scheduled for publication in 2017 and 2019. I, I don't yeah. know. I'm asking. So, I mean, that's not something many of us can say about our workload into the future. Is, is that right? And how do you feel about, it, about your time being uh, scheduled like well, that? Well, two years ought to be plenty to write a book. Yeah. Some people write one a year or even more. You know, yeah. I was at Sophie Hannah's launch party on Thursday for her new book, and I think she's like written, she's written about nineteen since before I go to sleep came out. That's yeah. a joke. But, um, it's kind of I know I, I know what they're going to be. Uh, so um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited about it, and uh, you know, and um, yeah, I think I think most yeah. Anyway, yes. So you you're writing the. Your third one now. I'm writing now. the third one now, yeah, mm -hmm. and the fourth. The fourth the, I suppose the fourth one is changing all the time. Um, I was going to say what it might be, but I might not in case... The it, third one. The fourth yeah. one, oh, the actually, fourth one. because okay. there's a character in this one uh, who I have, I'm not done with. Um, <laughs> and okay. she only appears for, like, on about two pages. And I just, she, just doesn't, she just doesn't <laughs> feel... I don't feel done with her. Okay. And... Um, so I think book four might be, it might be a book that sort of does this. So there might be one scene, <laughs> does that make sense? I mean, as in intersex with Second Life, as in there right, might be one right. scene in the middle, oh, which I is in see. both books, wow. but okay. it's telling this person's story. Uh -huh. That's a possibility. I haven't said that to my editor yet. <laughs> Exclusive <laughs> tonight, that's great. So um, don't tell anybody. Okay, okay. And... Uh, so did, you see me, did you see me neatly sidestep the question of what, what book three is about there? Because yeah. I don't want to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, I won't <laughs> ask you, but is it, is it difficult to kind of hold all these books in your head 
for different purposes. So, you know, you're still being asked about before I go to sleep. Mm. You're here to talk about this one. You're writing well, yeah, the next one. <laughs> you know? It's funny. I did an interview earlier this afternoon and I... <laughs> I was I was I was in I did a re I read for about a minute in the during the interview, uh, and I was introducing my reading and I totally forgot one of the characters' names, in this book which I'm talking about now and partly that's because it is a name that changed three times during the writing of it because I just couldn't quite settle on the name, but also it's because I've, I'm I'm about to go off travelling for about a couple of weeks, so I'm, so I I can't get any any of my writing work done so I've been having I've been sort of quite intensively. Uh, with a bit of going on Twitter as well, but I've been in writing solidly for about three weeks now um, on the new book. And so my mind is totally in that world and with those characters. Mm -hmm. And it is quite, it's quite, I never really experienced it until tonight yeah. or this afternoon. And I thought, oh, okay. Now I've, uh, and I kind of had to think myself back into the world of Second Life. So it's kind of weird, really. And I don't, I think it must be really weird for people who do write a book a year because they must be writing one book whilst editing another book and talking about a third book. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, so it's, it's bizarre, but uh, it's a great problem to have. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, uh, we could squeeze one more question if anybody has one. That's fine. That means I won't get into trouble then, so that's great. <laughs> so, um, just like to say, uh, thank you very much to you all for coming this, even, this evening. Steve will be signing copies of uh, Second Life in the signing tent, which is next to this one. You just go out of here and left. Um, I'd like to say thank you to the book festival staff and to you all for coming and for your insightful questions. Can we all thank SJ Watson, please? Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.